Hi, this is Carl. We're excited to announce Microsoft's newest developer service called Azure Pipelines, a fully managed CI-CD platform for any app, language, or cloud. Azure Pipelines is integrated with GitHub through their CI Marketplace and free for open source projects with 10 concurrent jobs and unlimited build minutes for their cloud-hosted Linux, Mac OS, and Windows agents. Learn all the details by visiting azure.com slash pipelines. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And I'm here in my home office, and you're over there in your home office, and we're about to get busy here. Doing the thing with the stuff. Yeah, we're doing this out of order. We're actually recording this on the 5th of September. Right. So things are about to get crazy for us conference-wise. Sydney, and then... Oh, yeah. We're going to Prague. We're going to Orlando for Ignite. Not in that order. We're everywhere. Yeah. It's fall event season. It's going to be hairy. It's going to be fun, though. Yep. Always is. Hard to be unhappy. I got a very cool thing for Better Know Framework. So roll the music. All right. Okay, dude, what do you got? X command. XCMD, aka bash plus plus. Oh. It's described as super batch commands for Windows. X command makes your good old command line super command line. If you like bash, it will make command bash plus plus. Powered by batch files in script CS. Huh. Oh, yeah, right. Funny, I was just talking about that the other day. That was... Glenn Block. Glenn Block. Yeah. Back in the day. Right. I, I know what it was. I was trying to figure out... Remember when Roslyn was in that weird state where it wasn't, it wasn't actually an open source project? I mean, we always think of an open source project now. Yeah. But it had a Go Live license. Yeah. But you weren't allowed to deploy it with applications. So you had to have an install process where you downloaded Roslyn to include it. And Script CS went through all those hoops to make that stuff work. Hmm. Hmm. Boy, open source makes life so much easier, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so the technology behind this is script CS plus optionally chocolatey. Nice. And good old-fashioned batch files. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. It's an MIT license. It's easy to use and easy to get started. So, yeah, check it out. You might like it. That's a good one, man. Nice find. Yeah, that's, that's what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off show 1527, which we did back in March of 2018, talking to Mr. Hunter about the roadmap for .NET Core 2. And as I recall, there was some conversation with him about SignalR at the time. And I know we're going to talk a lot more about it, hmm. but we won't get into that just yet. And this comment comes from Abdullah, who says, I was interested to know if both Core and the full framework will be getting brand new features, or will we come to a point where the new baby, being .NET Core, gets most of the attention, and the grown-up kid, the full framework, or what we call standard framework, will somehow be neglected and not getting much love. Also, new versions of .NET Core keep getting big boosts of performance, but it's not clear if there's also significant performance lag work being done in the standard framework, or maybe it can't be improved much anymore. Hmm. I guess what I'm asking in terms of new features is whether Core will continue to get new feature first, and then it will be ported back to the full framework, if at all. Hmm. Which is a, a tricky question to answer, and I am not going to put that one on Anthony. Nope. Because he is a new Microsoft employee, and his correct answer would be, I really don't know. Uh, that would be a good move. 
it might be better to, to we could push it over to Scott Hunter, but I think I can kind of address this. Because without a doubt, .NET Core is the new baby, as Abdullah talks about it, and certainly has a lot more room to grow. You know, they're exploring different ways to do things. We do know from Jeff Fritz, who works on the standard core, that there's new features coming in ASP.web web forms. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly work going on in both places, and they're not necessarily the same work. I do feel like the standard framework has been optimized absolutely to its eyeballs. And while new features might get some optimizations in later revs, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of change with existing features. It was .NET Core that needed all the performance enhancing, right. and they've done that and continue to do that. And also, I think this is just one of those situations where, you know, whenever there's new stuff, people are afraid that the old stuff gets neglected, like completely neglected. And that just never is the case. But what you usually see is you see symmetry. You see them using these things together and figuring out how they can best work together. And that's what you see with the core underneath the regular .NET framework now this fall, which is going to be fantastic. Yeah, I think the things they're talking about in Core 3 with adding in things that are specific to Windows, but installed separately, so they're not breaking the sort of open source and cross-platform thing, right. it speaks to an interesting future. And, you know, they're still feeling their way. Right. That being said, Microsoft is pretty good about not leaving anybody behind. So if, if standard framework's all you care about, let them know. Mm. You know, stay on them about that. And I'm sure they're listening. Sure. And we'll continue to support it. Could there be a time when there's only one framework? Well, you know, I've always envisioned an idea and certainly talked about it on the show of once we can get to a lift and shift that you could just pick up your existing .NET full framework or standard framework app and compile it on core and it just worked, why wouldn't you? Right. Until it's there, I can't imagine them turning off anything. That's just not their way. I can't imagine that either. The visual basic runtime. <laughs> I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> is still in Windows. It's still there. Like, you know, come on. Right. This stuff doesn't stop. And Silverlight may be getting trickier to install these days because a lot of browsers just don't allow it, but IE does. Yeah. And heck, we still use some Silverlight apps, right? Actually, we have phased our Silverlight apps out. I mean, I have. I don't know if you're yeah. still using it, but. I don't know. Yeah. They don't break. They don't break. But it is an interesting reality. So, Abdullah, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm the definitive answer in anything, but, you know, I have had the good fortune to be on all of these shows and to talk to these folks and to really get a sense of how Microsoft treats things. There's clearly work going on in both versions of the framework. If one is more important to you than the other, make sure you're communicating to the Microsoft folks via user voice and on GitHub and all those places. Let them know what matters to you because they do take that into consideration. Yeah, exactly. And that's all I got. And of course, a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We maintain backward compatibility. Nice. Mm. Tweet.vb, <laughs> for example. <laughs> All right, let's bring on Anthony. Anthony Chu is a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft living in Vancouver, Canada. Hey, I've heard of that place. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. Has he been to your house for ribs, though? That's... Hmm, no, I don't think he ever has. 
Oh, that's got to change. Yeah. Uh, he mainly focuses on .NET, JavaScript, serverless, and containers. Recently, Anthony has been spending his time on ASP.NET Core Signal R and the new Azure Signal R service, as well as looking at ways to use Azure functions to enable more programming languages and other Azure services to take advantage of Signal R for real-time messaging. Absolutely speaking my language here, Anthony. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Am I right? You've never been out to the house, have you, Anthony? No, I'm still waiting for that invite. Yeah, I do a gathering on a regular basis with the Microsoft folks out in this part of the world. Although, technically, you work for Redmen, so maybe I shouldn't invite you. But <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, you know what the funny thing is? I think I've run into you more outside of town than I have in Vancouver. Yeah. Well, I'm. I, it's not unusual, really. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You've been known to travel, my friend. Uh, I'm negotiating scheduling with uh, Mark Schramm for the one talk a year I do in Vancouver. It'll probably be in November, hmm. but it is literally once a year if I'm lucky. Yeah. Well, cool. Dude, SignalR is like the most amazing thing that's happened to Sockets since, well... TCPIP sockets. Oh, it's my friend Carl's favorite toy in the world. He adores it. I love SignalR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it too. Just recently wrote a self-hosted WPF-based, you know, ON Cores SignalR server just because I needed to do some stuff on a local network for a company. And I had written these before, but I never had anything that I could just sort of plop in and reuse and start from scratch. So I sort of built it that way so that if I ever needed to do this again, I could just pick it up, drop it in a new project, and start anew. And it's just just works. It's just amazing. Love it. Yeah, it's great. It's really easy to get started. Yeah. Works on phones, works on browsers, works on computers, works on tablets, works everywhere. Works on refrigerators. Let's face it. <laughs> SignalR.fridge. So tell us what's new. Yeah, so there's been quite a few changes with SignalR over the last few months. So as you might know, for quite a while there with .NET Core, we didn't have a version of SignalR that worked with .NET Core. So that all changed with .NET Core 2.1 when we got a new version of SignalR that was rebuilt from the ground up mm. to work with .NET Core. Mm. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And then the other kind of new development recently is that we announced a new service on Azure called Azure SignalR Service. Yeah. And that's, well, as the name suggests, it's SignalR as a service. So it's got two capabilities. One is that it allows you to scale out your ASP.NET Core SignalR applications really, really easily with the service. And then the other capability is that you can kind of use SignalR without ASP.NET. Um, so that opens up the, the SignalR goodness to pretty much any programming languages out there. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's great. And very easy to configure too, right? Yeah, it's only got a couple of knobs. You literally give it a name and you choose your tier. So you can choose a free tier or you choose how many connections you want to support. So the free tier gives you up to 100 connections. Mm -hmm. And if you need more, man, or if you need an SLA, you can go up to the standard tier and then you can kind of buy units of 1,000 connections at a time, wow. right. up to 10,000 connections. And then um, once we go GA, we plan to go a lot higher than that. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but... This was always one of the things that worried me about SignalR because it was this continuous socket connection to a service. I mean, eventually, don't you run out of sockets on the back end? Yeah, so behind the scenes, we're pretty much hosting SignalR in an ASP.NET app. So we're scaling right. that out for you just the same as if you were doing it yourself hmm. using a backplane. 
So in that sense, it's scaling out to multiple instances. So each one of those instances can handle a significant amount of connections. Yeah. And the way it happens is you listen on a particular port, you have a listener, and then this is just in the sockets TCP IP world. And then that listener passes off control to a socket. And then that's just a, a connection. It's not a thread. It's a resource, certainly, but it doesn't necessarily run on its own thread or anything like that. It's just a connection. Right. And then that it's a very lightweight connection. So they can scale up with memory and backplane and all that stuff, right? Yeah, the task parallel library uh, that came in in .NET 4 and async await in .NET 4.5 really makes it a lot easier to to program stuff like this without dealing with threads or anything, because there are no threads really. Right. But just dealing with asynchronous things like network mm. just makes that so much easier. Yeah, it's fantastic. I found that in my SignalR applications, I do have to sort of keep up a minimum amount of traffic. So I end up doing like a ping, you know, every minute or two just to make sure that keeps alive. And I know there's a setting somewhere that I can change to do that, but yeah, in SignalR core at least, I think the client sends a ping once in a while to the server, um, or maybe, maybe it's the other way around. So yeah, there is a ping kind of already built into the protocol. That's good. Just works. I mean, all right, it's been a fun show. <laughs> <laughs> Just works. Thanks for playing. IJW technology. <laughs> there is a lot going on under the hood, right? I mean, you have WebSockets, which is, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to program the WebSockets protocol, but it's... It's got teeth, man. I mean, it's got hair growing out its ears. You know what I mean? And it's not just programming WebSockets, right? So what if your connection actually doesn't support WebSockets for some reason? Yeah, you have to fall back. So SignalR itself, it falls back to server-sent events or long polling if needed. And it does that on a connection-by-connection -connection basis. So it kind of abstracts that away from you. It also adds another programming layer on top of it, too. So you're not just dealing with connections. So you can actually... Say, hey, I want to broadcast a message to all connections, and it knows how to iterate all the connections and just yeah. switch to them. You can associate a user with one connection or even more than one connection, and you can target right. hmm. messages at a user. Hmm. I mean, it works perfectly with ASP.NET Core identity as well, so it's just more or less the user's flows right into SignalR. Hmm. And also, you can just arbitrarily put connections into groups. Right. So you can send a message to groups, and, and a group can hold, you know, many, many connections, and a single connection can be in multiple groups. So that makes it really easy to kind of target the right subset of your connections with your messaging. Now, what do you do about authentication? You can obviously roll your own, but is there anything built in? Um, it pretty much just works with the authentication um, and identity middleware that comes with ASP.NET Core. Yeah. So you can actually throw a, an, an authorized attribute on the hub itself. Mm. And it'll just work, you know, trademark TM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So going from ASP.NET SignalR to ASP.NET Core SignalR, are there any changes that we should be concerned about or aware of? So I think a lot of the programming model still more or less stays the same. So SignalR has the idea of hubs. And a hub is just, if you can think of it, it's just like a class with methods on it. Right. And clients can invoke methods on that hub. And that hub itself has the ability to send messages to all the connections or subset of connections. And that concept stays the same. Um, the library itself more or less stays the same in terms of how you work with it. But it is using a new protocol under the covers. So you can't use an old, like a, a client from ASP.NET SignalR and expect that to work with ASP.NET Core SignalR. Mm -hmm. So you do have to worry about the version, versioning of the clients. Some of the changes include 
we no longer depend on jQuery, which is great. Yay. <laughs> yeah, back when SignalR was started, like in 20, 2011 or something like that, jQuery was the thing, right? So it, was, it actually made sense for, for it to integrate with jQuery. Like our front-end folks are trying to get jQuery out of our applications as much as possible and use frameworks like Angular or Vue or React. So this helps a lot with that. So you're no longer bringing jQuery as a dependency. Right. You now also need sticky sessions, whereas before you didn't. Before you were, you were able to, if you had scaled out your ASP.NET Core application, a client can pretty much go to any server at once and it'll still work. But now we require sticky sessions. A lot of these changes are, we're kind of done to kind of simplify the server a bit. In many ways, a lot of the capabilities that were added in there before, things like auto reconnects, those of you kind of have to do that on your own, or when you reconnect to actually replace some messages. Mm. All those things made the server a lot more difficult to program and introduced a lot of bugs and memory leaks and stuff like that. So a lot of that was cut back. And we also found that it wasn't, you know, a lot of these things weren't a one size fits all kind of solution. Right. So we're just making it a lot more pluggable. And um, so you can actually, you know, like, if, for instance, if you want to do exponential retry on the JavaScript side to reconnect, you can just do that yourself. It's not that hard to reconnect. You just have to remember that you have to do it yourself now. Hmm. So I'm trying to figure out when I should run my own backend and when I should be using the Azure product. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about the scale out a little bit. So typically when you scale out SignalR, you would need to set up a backplane. Right. And with ASP.NET Core SignalR, the backplane that we support is Redis. Yeah. So in order to do that, you have to make sure that you stand up your own Redis cluster that's, you know, that's got multiple servers and mm-hmm. it's highly available, all that stuff, and make sure that you run Redis on it. Azure's got a Redis service, so you can actually just use that. But that's something that you have to run. You have to configure SignalR to work with it. Yeah. And then on the front end of your application, as I was saying earlier, you now require sticky sessions. So you now have to basically configure your router or load balancer to make sure that sticky sessions is in place. I mean, again, if you hosted it in app service, a lot of that is done for you. But SignalR service really makes that, really just takes that away. And quite often what you end up having in an app is that you might have an app that's heavy in SignalR traffic, but lower in web traffic. Yeah. More could be the other way around. And without separating SignalR connections and the web kind of traffic, you end up having to scale the one app, even though you're only trying to scale out one, like, you know, just your SignalR connections, for example. Mm. So having the SignalR service itself being there and handling basically all the connections for you, you can now scale that independently from your ASP.NET Core application. So before, if you had to handle a lot of connections, what you probably had to do is you, you probably had to scale up your server or scale it out. But now you don't have to worry about doing that. You can leave maybe like two, maybe even one small instance of your ASP.NET Core application just running there. Mm-hmm. And the service itself handles all the connections for you. And when something gets invoked from the client on the hub, for example, that still gets relayed back to your ASP.NET Core application. So you still have a hub in your ASP.NET Core application. But the, you know, the, the, the management of the connections and the groups and all that stuff, that's actually all managed by the server itself. Hmm. So the load on your ASP.NET Core application is actually quite low. It's just whenever the hub methods are invoked and you need to execute some kind of logic to decide who to send the messages to, that's when your ASP.NET Core application is actually used. So I'm trying to think now if you're 
just messing around and you need 100 connections or less, all right, the service sounds like a good idea. And if you need to really scale out, it seems like the service is also a good idea. So, <laughs> and, you know, decoupling that from your ASP.NET web page is also a good idea, no matter what. So, I'm trying to find maybe just if you're running inside a firewall. Yeah. You know, and you can't, you don't have internet access, maybe? I'm with you, Carl. That seems like the only reason you wouldn't use a free service. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe just complexity, right? Like if you just have an app that really just has a few connections, right? And it's, you know, SignalR just happens to be a small piece of your application, then maybe it makes sense to just have that inside of your ASP.NET Core application and just deploy it in, as, as one thing without right. having to worry about the service. Although, as, as I mentioned earlier, the service is really easy to sign up, just to give it a name mm. and number of connections. Yeah. Yeah. And Anthony, I'm going to interrupt you there for one moment for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .netrocks to get a discount. And we're back. It's Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, maybe the other way around, here on .NET Rocks, talking to <laughs> Anthony Chu about the new features in SignalR, the ASP.NET Core version of SignalR, as well as these Azure pieces. And, the, you know, the base level, the dev version and test version is free, although the rate for the paid version is pretty cheap. <laughs> so I don't know that I'd get too anxious one way or other. I want to try hard here, maybe spend 20 bucks. <laughs> you got to try real hard. Real hard. <laughs> but yeah, Carl's making the point that, I mean, why in the world would you do anything other than, than run the Azure backend and I guess only a lack of connectivity? Or just uh, trivial traffic. You know? Just so small. Yeah. yeah. Is there any other situation you can think of, Anthony, that the service wouldn't be appropriate? I might be a little biased because I've been working closely with the team that built the service for quite a while. I think everyone should just stand up a very similar <laughs> service instance and just use it. Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> the canonical example is the bloody chat box. Yeah. And it, and like rule number one, don't actually deploy anything like that. Like between the Slack and the Teams and the Skype messengers and every other thing, we don't need another one of those. Can you tell us some examples of stuff that really SignalR resonates with as a great way to code? Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, you can never have too many chat applications, I don't think. There's quite a few examples that I can think of. So, for instance, live dashboards, you know, things with a lot of charts in it that's live updating. Right. Things that are required in-app notifications. Things like, you know, like when you, you use a ride-sharing app like Uber or Lyft, and you open it up, you can actually see drivers around you and just moving around on the map. Or when a driver's actually, you know, picked up your ride and it's on, on their way to you, you can see them on the map itself so you know when to go outside. Things like stocks, right? You can go to any stock page now. And it's almost an expectation now these days that these things are live, right? So when Signar first came out, I think these kinds of capabilities were kind of a nice to have. Right. It's kind of like an add-on. Although now these days, it's more of an expectation. Yeah. So 
the one example that stands out to me is one we've already used, Richard, which is preventing concurrency bonks. And this works in any application where you've got more than one user. Essentially, if you're if you're working on a screen that's got a you know view of data and all that data is just on the client, you're editing it and it's going to be saved. There's a chance that somebody else is working on that record too. And rather than locking them out, you basically update the fields in real time, or at least notify people that you know, hey, Richard is made an edit to this. Do you want to check it out, accept it, whatever? And then you don't have to wait until you hit the database to find out that you've written over somebody's record. That to me is just a no-brainer. Or gotten a, a, okay, now you need to merge. Like all of these alternatives are worse than. Yeah, right. You and I have done this on the, the show editor where we are literally both typing into the notes field at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And we just see each other's changes in real time. It's super creepy. I mean, admittedly. But it saves so much work. Uh, you know, it reminds me of, I think it was in the early teens of .NET Rocks, the, the early teen shows. Bill Vaughn was on, and we were talking about this new ADO.NET <laughs> thing or the, with a data adapter, I think it was, and how it handles concurrency by doing a where clause in the update, right? And Right. Yeah, because it takes the original values, and all the original values have to match, and and he said, you know, when I build a system, I think this is great and everything, but when I build a system, I try to avoid a collision in the first place. He says, you know, it's kind of like the New York City Department of Transportation showing up at an intersection going, okay, where are we going to stack the bodies? <laughs> yeah. Right? You want to make your app safe from collisions in the first place. And that's exactly what we're talking about here yeah exactly that yeah that's a great use for it no, no question and very funny right just sort of that reality the dashboard scenario you outlined early anthony i've certainly seen examples of that it's, and it's interesting to see that people are far keener to that sort of real world time right that they want the board to just be steadily updating with the data as it comes in so yeah it's all a question of how much impact that has. Like how many people can watch that dashboard before mm. you kind of drop to your knees? Yeah. Yeah, that's always a question, you know, like how real time do you really need to be? But I think it's just like I was saying, like it's just more of an expectation these days that basically our applications just has real time messaging in it. Yeah, no question. And, and yeah, certainly in the mobile scenario, that's it's expected. But the mobile scenario to me is super interesting just because that means you're not running a browser on the front end, probably. You're inside a mobile app or things like that. So what happens when you want these other kinds of clients? You want to work in Android or iOS? Yeah, so right now, ASP.NET Core SignalR, so basically a new version of SignalR, has two clients out that are generally available. So that's right. a JavaScript SDK and also a C-sharp SDK. So with C-sharp one, you can build Xamarin apps, no problem. Right. And we're also working on a Java SDK as well that should be hopefully coming out later this year. Cool. And that's going to allow you to use SignalR within an Android app, for example, if you don't want to use Xamarin. Yeah, Java would be absolutely native. Also, we'll be working on an iOS, probably Swift implementation as well soon. Are you guys going to write that or will you get a third? Would somebody else in the open source community pick this up and contribute it to it? I think it will depend on the interest. I, so far, sure. we've seen a lot of interest in ASP.NET Core SignalR and, and, and in service itself. So I wouldn't be surprised if some people in the community just pick that up 
Yeah, that's what I'm, I mean, is this the beautiful thing these days, Anthony, right? Is this idea of a, you guys put this out there, it's up in the open source space, and who needs a client for what, you know? Who knows if someone wouldn't run with a Tizen client that they, because they wanted to have SignalR effects working with the television, you know, with any of the Samsung devices. Like that to me is the cool part. I think about what happened to TypeScript. <laughs> you know, we thought TypeScript was kind of cool, but the open source community thought it was much cooler. And the number yeah. of plugins and things that got built by all over the ecosystem. I would just wonder if we're going to add that same kind of effect here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping for that. But even with um, ASP.NET SignalR, we saw third-party kind of like open source clients popping up everywhere for Python and Go and stuff like that. Yep. So I totally expect that to happen for ASP.NET Core SignalR and for the service itself as well. Mm. Um, especially now that we actually documented the protocol, whereas I think, I think before people actually had to reverse and engineer it and they still managed to build it. So yeah. right now the protocol is completely written up in full on GitHub. So you can just go and check it out and just go ahead and implement it. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to announce a man groomer for those who have extra thick, high-speed hair growth. It's called the back plane. <laughs> it's, it's, a little, it's a little gross. All right, a little gross. <laughs> yeah, shave my back with a plane. Nice. Yeah. And if you do it wrong, you're making skin graft contribution. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. And new this year is a free online training program for all license holders. And with this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash download. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Len Tilly. Congratulations, Len. Yeah, congratulations. Golf clap for you. And Len just won a $200 Amazon gift card. Compliments of Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, just go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Anthony. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I'm actually kind of boring. I've had an iPhone for three years now. It's time for an upgrade. My wife's iPhone is four years old, so mm -hmm. I think it's time for her to upgrade as well. So we're just waiting for to see what uh, Apple's going to announce in a couple of weeks. I love that the new iPhone is boring. Dude, that's great. <laughs> it's very cool. You just kind of buy it just because you don't want to yeah. you know, spend the time to switch to another platform. Same thing with my Apple Watch. It's an original, so I think it's time for a new one of those. It's a supercomputer in your pocket that you play Candy Crush with. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I would love to pick up a new Windows laptop as well. So mm -hmm. so my work laptop is actually a MacBook Pro, 
And it's great. I love it. But sometimes I need to do some demos or, or something where I want to bring around a Windows laptop so I can use Visual Studio and stuff like that without yeah. running it in parallels. Mm -hmm. So I would love to have a new kind of Windows laptop. Are you thinking the Surface Go or the book? I'm actually thinking the Surface laptop. I kind of like the form factor still. I, I still yeah, yeah. kind of like the, the, the laptop form factor without kind of like, you know, the bulkiness of, you know, like say a Surface book or kind of like that little kickstand thing of the services themselves. So, yeah, some, some of us still like laptops. We're not crazy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. The boring ones do anyway. I love my book. It is getting old enough now that I've been getting to worry that the gamma rays are getting to it. It's getting a little bit weirder, a little more blue screeny. So it's, uh, it might be time to upgrade, but just a plain, you know, the, the Cypress laptop is, it's beautiful. They're really good looking machines. Yeah, agreed. Love it. I just don't know if you've spent enough money. If you're not going to buy, see, if you're going to buy the book, well, it's like, hey, there's three grand. You, <laughs> you've dented it, right? Yeah. But the rest of them are cheap. They're $1,000, $1,500. Like, yeah. Well, I think in Canadian dollars, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> what's our current exchange right now? So it's like you got sixty five hundred bucks to spend. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not when you put it that way. <laughs> I can yeah. buy a lot more stuff. Oh, I feel better now. You could spec out a Surface laptop with like sixteen gigs of RAM and stuff, and then you're yeah, you're spending some money. Yep. Oh yeah. They they do that. <laughs> Love it. So, what else can we talk about SignalR that uh, people may or may not know? We're going to talk about the new functions integration that we're, yeah, yeah, that, that we've been working on. Like I was saying earlier, SignalR and also ASP.NET Core SignalR work great when you have an ASP.NET or an ASP.NET Core application. But now with the SignalR service in Azure, it actually opens up a lot of doors because you no longer require an ASP.NET application to use the service mm -hmm. and still have access to SignalR. Right. And you can do that even without any kind of functions integration by calling a REST API on the service to send messages or, you know, add or remove people from groups and stuff like that. But we've created a new binding for Azure Functions that pretty much takes care of working with that REST API for you. So for, the, for those of you who haven't done much with Azure Functions, Azure Functions has a great concept called triggers and bindings. So we built a couple of bindings for SignalR service. And a binding allows you to basically do things like when my function is triggered, also go off to a database and pull back a document so that in my very first line of code in my function, I have access to the data from the thing that triggered me, you know, for instance, an HTTP request, mm. but also like maybe a document from Cosmos DB, for example. Yeah. And then also as a concept of output bindings. And an output binding allows you to return, typically return, you know, like op just plain objects. And behind the scenes, it'll go off and maybe save a document in Cosmos DB, or I'll put a message to message us to, to service bus, things like that. So the SignalR binding, it comes in two pieces. So we have an input binding that allows us to really easily generate a, a connection endpoint and also a valid token for a client to connect to SignalR service. So we typically use that within a really simple HTTP trigger function. So when, when a client loads up, so whether it's a browser or phone app, we would first make a call to that HTTP trigger function. And then the binding will give the function a valid token for you. And then you just more or less just return that directly to the user in about two lines of code. And then the client will go ahead and take that token and endpoint and actually make that connection to the service. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is an output binding. And that output binding 
literally lets you return one or more SignalR messages, which are basically just objects that indicate which method you want to invoke on a client, and also which parameters do you want to pass to that method. And also, we're working on groups and user supports. You can also supply group names that you want to target or user IDs that you want to target. So these are just plain objects that you can that that you can return. And then behind the scenes, we actually go and talk to SignalR service to send those messages out for you. Mm. So if you imagine the you know the, the the code is you know like a couple lines of code, just return a couple of objects, and you've sent a message. Yeah. So that really opens it up to many languages. So this works with version two of the functions runtime, and that's currently supporting .NET and JavaScript with Java and Python on the way. And as as functions adds more languages. They will just automatically get access to the SignalR binding. Right. So that's pretty cool. And then the other great thing about functions is that with all these triggers, you can trigger stuff off of. I was mentioning HTTP earlier, but you can also trigger a function from a Cosmos DB change feed. You can trigger it from Event Hubs, Event Grid, yeah, Service Bus. You know, there's you know like probably ten or fifteen bindings out there. And if those aren't enough, you can actually use Logic Apps, which has another you know another hundred or a couple hundred kind of event sources, right. Salesforce, for example, right? So, so for instance, if you want to, you know, like when an order gets created in Salesforce, you actually want to have that, you know, send a message out on SignalR service. It's actually really easy. You just more or less create a webhook function in Azure Functions that sends that message. And then you can create a really simple workflow in Logic Apps that will fire when a new, new order appears in Salesforce and call that function. So it really opens up a lot of doors. Do you have a blog or is there a list somewhere of resources, like Channel 9 videos that if you want to go down the rabbit hole here, you can? Yeah, so there's a couple of Channel 9 videos that I can think of. So one is David Fowler and Damian Edwards' presentation at Build this year. They really dive into kind of like, you know, like some of the stuff we talked about, like the changes with ASP.NET Core SignalR, but they also dive really into the internals of SignalR itself. And, and then at the end, they talk about the service. I also have a video up myself and Cecil Phillip did an on.NET episode on it. And that's also on Channel 9. Great. And we're also working on a bunch of documentation to go on docs.microsoft.com when SignalR service GAs, which hopefully, you know, might, might happen when this podcast airs. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I got to think one of the challenges when you're dealing with functions is because they're sort of stateless and transient, how do you maintain that connection that sort of SignalR is famous for over time? Yeah, so that's the beauty of the service because the connection is actually between the client and the service itself. So there's actually no connection between Azure Functions and the SignalR service right. until there's a message to be sent when that REST API is invoked. Hmm. So you kind of have your serverless cake and eat it too, because you, you've mm-hmm. kind of offloaded that connection management off to a dedicated service. So it's the thing maintaining the connections. I mean, I could totally see that a client should be able to come up through the black pane to make a request that then invokes this function. How hard is it for a function to sort of call back to a client that didn't initiate, like you're doing some kind of pub-sub behavior, although typically I'd kick over to messaging for this, but... Is that something I could do with SignalR to say, all right, I need to notify the following, you know, X number of people. Is that just calling to a hub? Yeah, so that's actually what we're optimized for in functions. So um, right. the functions output binding, it's actually used for outputting messages to clients. Mm-hmm. Right now, the clients, they still connect to SignalR 
service as if it was an ASP.NET course in our application. Right. And that's still a bi-directional WebSocket. But if the client were to send a message up that WebSocket to the server, it actually doesn't know what to do with it because there's actually not really a hub behind the scenes. Oh, I see. Yeah. So uh, we're actually working on trying to figure out how we can solve this, perhaps using a webhook. So for instance, you can just invoke methods that are more or less virtual on the service because there's no hub there. But then behind the scenes, we might actually have that maybe invoke an Azure function. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or it could be a message that goes out to Event Hub and then somehow that eventually goes back to an Azure function that will deal with that and perhaps produce more messages. So it's the upstream that's actually challenging there, which I guess makes sense to me, really. Mm. Yeah. The downstream, like if we're pushing out, uh, you know, updates to dashboards and stuff, that's all no problem. Yeah. And I would say that's like 90% of the use case. And to go upstream, sure. for most use cases, a client can still just make an HTTP call to an Azure function. Right. Instead of trying to send a message up that WebSocket pipe. Yeah. Rather than going up the socket itself, make a short duration connection with some kind of token, some kind of identifier that then it can call into service, go, I'm, I'm talking to this guy. This is what he wants now. So you make you say you're making a change to the dashboard. Show me this instead of that. You just do that through a separate call and it maps it back and then the downstream will show the update. Yeah, and that allows you to piggyback of the app service authentication that's available in Azure Functions. So because you're just making a call to the function itself using plain HTTPs, if you were authenticated to... Facebook or whatever your function app is configured to authenticate against. Right. All that just flows through in a token to the HTTP trigger to the function. Nice. And the function knows who you are. Nice. Yeah. And when we generate that token in the very beginning, when I was talking about that input binding, we can actually pass in a user ID. And that also fits in really well with the app service authentication because you more or less get the user's ID given to you in an application via environment variables. Mm-hmm. So you can actually more or less just pass that to the binding. And now the token that's in the binding actually has that user ID embedded in it. So SignalR service itself, when your client makes that connection to it, using that token, it knows who that user ID is. So now on the other end, when you try to send a message using the output binding, you can specify a user ID, and then it will only go to connections that are authenticated against that user ID. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's a match made in heaven. Yeah. And it speaks to another strong aspect of using the Azure backend here is you get all that identity stuff. So it's just handled for you. You don't have to do it. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah. So this opens up a lot of doors. So we see um, a lot of requests. I was just on the phone earlier with some folks who want to kind of implement the functions binding to SignalR with an IoT kind of scenario, like kind of like vehicles moving around on a map type situation where they have a bunch of data just shooting into IoT hub or event hubs. And then you can just connect a function on the other end that outputs that data back down WebSockets to maybe a mobile application, maybe somebody's desktop where they're monitoring these vehicles. We got a lot of requests about can Cosmos DB integrate with WebSockets? And this flows in really well as well. So if you update a document in Cosmos DB, you can actually have that event go onto the change feed. And that event going on the change feed can fire an Azure function. Mm. So you can now, over WebSockets, get notified when you have documents changing and being created in Cosmos DB. So there's a whole bunch of scenarios that this opens up. So there is an, one scenario that I want to revisit. And the last time I talked to somebody at Microsoft about this, 
the answer was don't do that. But <laughs> what about time sensitive information such as, you know, audio streaming or, or media streaming? I know that there's entirely different architectures already set up to do streaming, but it's such an easy programming paradigm. I'm wondering if that is even something that we should think about. Probably not with serverless and the service itself, because even though it's more or less real time, it does take time to fire the, the, the function. It might take half a second or whatever it is. I'm just thinking of SignalR. I'm just thinking of you oh, know yeah. broadcasting audio packets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've actually seen people do that. I think I was um, reading a tweet this past week. Somebody actually hooked up their IoT camera to an ASP.NET Core SignalR application. And they're just more or less just sending the frames from the camera, I believe, just down to clients for them to receive. Huh. And it, apparently it works pretty well. I haven't seen this in person, but they managed to do it. Wow. There's no real-time guarantees there, right? Like audio sure. is so time-sensitive. That's what I mean, yeah. It's, it, it's, mm. not, so it's, it's not like you could solve this with a big old fat pipe. Latency matters too. Sure, and all the overhead of wrapping and unwrapping all that data through all the layers you know, it's going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to add some milliseconds. And it's one of those things where it's, it's going to work right up until it doesn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. the machine goes into a garbage collection or you kick off some other cycle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Something that just gets it behind and it just has no concept of real timeness to even kick a warning to go, uh-oh, I can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see, you know, a webcam or something because who cares if you miss a frame, you know? Yeah. It's not a video. It's not a smooth video anyway. It's just frames, but yeah. Interesting balance. Of course, we care far more about audio because we're that kind of audio snobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, again, you get away with a lot just because these days compared to the pipes we have available, there's just so little bandwidth required. Yeah. And, you know, you could you could maybe use a, a really low-fi codec like Speaks. Yeah. You know, for it would be low-fi. It's not like a telephone. But you could probably cache enough frames to have a smooth conversation there flowing. But I can't imagine like doing MP3 compression. No, this is not what this is for. Yeah, it's not what it's for. <laughs> like I said, the last time I talked to somebody at Microsoft, they was like, nah, don't do that. And, you know, you're just <laughs> confirming it. <laughs> My arm hurts when I lift it this high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are other services for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, this is cool. Well, yeah, absolutely. And Anthony, what, what's next in the SignalR world? What are you guys working on? Is there anything you can share with us? Yeah, so we're getting really, really close to GA. So hopefully by the time this publishes, we'll be GA by that point. So we're just working on just more or less just getting it to work at a higher scale. So for instance, right now in preview, um, we're supporting up to 10,000 connections. And we're hoping to go up to 100,000 connections by the time GA comes along. Wow. Yeah, and we're also looking at expanding to a bunch more regions. Hopefully, we'll have a region close to you. Because with Signar, like you were mentioning earlier, latency does matter. So we, we, we do need to be in a lot of geographies. So right. we're looking to be in about 11 regions by, by GA time. And also the Azure Functions binding that we were talking about earlier, that will be in preview. Um, yeah. that's, all, that's already kind of done in the open right now anyway. So anyone can use it right now. But we'll be kind of more kind of sharing that more broadly with documentation and everything. Great. When, when GA comes along. And also another kind of big ask that we get is, can we use the SignalR service with an ASP.NET application? So not ASP.NET Core, but ASP.NET. 
And so far, it's been no, or you kind of have to kind of find a way to get, you know, more, more or less ignore our core running in an ASP.NET application, and that becomes a little bit difficult. So I don't know what the progress is with that, but we're hoping to have a story for ASP.NET integration with the Signar service, hopefully soon. Wow, that's awesome. Well, Anthony, thanks a lot. It's been great having you on the show and talking about SignalR. I could do it all day long. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a